0: And it is always great to be here at Seton Hall University, where I, too, got my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree as well. And it's great to be here with so many familiar faces and friends. But one of the reasons why I'm sort of happy to be here is because I do have a, a wife and four small children, ages 14, 10, 7, and 3. And sometimes when my wife looks around the house and things are a little, little crazy, ever see that expression on a woman's face when she's about to lose it? Gentlemen, have you ever seen that, you know, and I got to say on Tuesday I came home and I saw that expression on my wife's face. And uh, perhaps the kids were involved in maybe the, the reason for some of her angst. But truth be told, that my own laziness and floppiness probably contributed to my wife's getting a little angry. But as father said, I'm a very bright person. I am no fool. So I saw my wife, she was about to lose it, but I said, honey, you do so much around here. You're such a great mother. I said, you know what, I'm going to take you out to dinner tomorrow night, last night. And I could see my wife's anger subside a little bit. She started to smile. I said, smart guy, right? uh, But my wife is a a woman of indecision. So I said, you know, wherever you want to go, I'm not going to drag you to one of those steak places that I like. I said, wherever you want to go, I'm going to take you out to dinner. And I could see the wheels turning in my wife's mind. And then she, then she sort of lit up, and she started doing like this motion. She said, uh, uh, can you, How about one of those places where they prepare the food right in front of you? I said, honey, I said, speak no more. <laughs> I, got a, I know a place. And so my wife got really dressed up. I thought a little too dressed up on Wednesday night. We got a babysitter. So I got, you know, I got the car. And I drove my wife to Subway and, you know, they prepare the food right in front of you. You got fine bread, you got assorted cheeses. Anyway, I'm happy to be here away from home. Anyway, anyway. That's my little opening story there. But, uh, you know, the, the, the topic tonight, right? Uh, you know, Jesus was not nice. And often, we characterize Christianity in our country. And often, Jesus himself is sort of like the bar is that we just got to be nice, right? To not be nice is sort of unchristian. And I'm going to tell a, a couple stories straight from the scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with. right? But I had a, a benefit and I, I've been, had the opportunity a, a number of times to study in Israel. And the last time I was there, I was at a place called Tantour and i was there for 6 weeks and it was some of the like the greatest moments and like the worst moments because it was great because i got to read and got to experience the culture of the land which really hasn't changed too much and it was sort of sad because i thought to myself i was a teacher and yet i've been missing the point of so many of these stories and so what I hope to bring to you tonight is maybe just a little bit of a of a shift in the cultural perspective. That as Americans, the things that we value are what? Freedom, liberty, independence, getting on my Harley. Whoa! Well maybe not, sister. Getting on my Harley and, you know, driving across the country and doing what I want. This is America. Right? If I screw up, don't blame my parents. I don't blame my grandparents or my, my kids. I take responsibility, but you know what, I'll, I'll try again and then you'll love me, right? So, and if I'm really crazy, you'll give me a reality TV show, right? Because <laughs> this is America and we highlight this stuff. But not so in the Middle East. You know, in the Middle East, the two driving forces are honor and shame. And those two values still drive behavior in the Middle East. So to bring dishonor reflects on your parents, your grandparents, and all past generations and future generations. So there's that great sort of internal you know, clock compass to be a person of honor. If there is shame, it either needs to be covered up or avenged. You know, Moses killed an Egyptian, what does he do? He, he covers it up before he is found out, right? And so this world of honor and shame is not like America, right? So the, the phrase exegesis in biblical studies, you try to draw out things from the text. Sort of the, the sin of biblical study is sort of eisegesis, sort of reading in my own thoughts, right? Making Jesus more like me as an American, rather than me becoming more like Jesus. So there's a couple stories that Jesus really gets into the fray and goes toe-to-toe with some of his adversaries, right? And he does it in such a way that I hope I'll bring out that really dishonors them. And as I say sort of in the, in the flyer, it's no wonder why they wanted to crucify him. You know, if we just characterize Jesus as nice, then, you know, who wants to harm somebody that's nice? He made some claims. Well, maybe he was crazy. But again, there's a couple stories that I think really bring this out, this idea of honor and shame. And like I said, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with them. And one of them is, you know, meals. You know, meals in the Bible, they mean something, certainly to the, the Middle Eastern person. You just don't have anybody at your house. But uh, when you do invite somebody over and they accept your invitation, uh, you are really responsible for them. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, you know, somebody's a visitor in your home, you have to stand between them and even whoever is trying to harm them. And better that you die an honorable death than you do something shameful. So again, this honor and shame is all throughout the text. And there's a story in Luke chapter 7, 36 uh, to 52, uh, to 50, that Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to dine. Now remember, Jesus is relatively a, a young rabbi, right? preaching, speaking, doing some of these miracles, people say. And so a Pharisee invited him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. See, whenever you eat a meal in the Middle East, and even the Last Supper, you would sit at a three-sided table called a triclinium. <coughs> a triclinium. And you would re- recline by what, leaning on your left elbow, and your body is outstretched. Right. It makes sense if you can visualize this for we know that a a woman who's going to come into the the house who was sinful. Right. So imagine yourself laying on the floor with your feet outstretched at this three sided table. Right. When the Jewish people, the Hebrews were enslaved, they had to eat standing up. So even the way you ate was a sign of your freedom to recline at table. And we know what's going to happen. Right. Now, there was a sinful woman in the city who learned that he was at table in the house of a Pharisee. Meals, or if I have you over for dinner, right, or if I bring you to Subway, that, you know, it might be a nice gesture. But in the Middle East, when you find out that there is a great man or a rabbi with a new teaching, these are not individual houses with long driveways. These are little houses and almost like apartment buildings or condos, you know, one story around. And so other people were expected to be there as well. So you have people sitting around this triclinium, right? And there would also be people sitting in the back against the wall, listening to a new teaching, a different perspective of a rabbi, right? This seating there was a specific order as well as where you sat. So at the Last Supper, it would have been St. John, and then the second seat in would have been the guest of honor, would have been Jesus. So even Jesus himself warns about what? Taking the seats of honor? Because there were seats of honor around the table. Jesus is reclining at table. This woman comes in and she's bringing an alabaster flask of ointment. right? So this is sort of the outward sign, the outward tools of someone who was a prostitute. In the Middle East, in Jesus' day, you stank, stunk, and stink, right? There's barely any water, no deodorant, and I don't care how hot you may be, right? If you stink, you stink, right? <laughs> and you're not that attractive. So the what a prostitute would do, she would carry this ointment, right, this perfumed oil, around her neck, the outward sign. And she was pretty good at her trade. This wasn't a flask from Kmart or Walmart or Costcutter's or the places I shop. Right? <laughs> this was like from Nordstrom's, the mall at Short Hills, right? It was pretty prestigious. It was, it was alabaster. And She what she stood behind him at his feet weeping. So Jesus has his feet outstretched. She standing behind him uh, and began to bathe his feet with her tears. She wiped them. This is going to be shocking, right? She wiped them with her hair. In the Middle East, hair is considered a private part of a woman. It's true. That's why if you're 13, 14 years old, women will begin to, to cover their hair. Hence to the extreme, perhaps, with our, some of our stricter Islamic brothers and sisters, uh, the burqa. Right? We have writings from a, a Jewish woman bragging that only the cedars of my bedroom have ever seen my hair. Right? Hair is a private part. And here is a woman at this feast, and what does she do? she lets down her hair publicly. The men would have wanted to look, because it's hair, <laughs> right? And if you don't think hair is important today, first of all, look how lovely all the ladies' hair looks. Right? But if you don't think hair and hair care is important, go to Walmart or Walgreens, Walgreens aisle four, five, six, seven, you know, all the hair care products, right? And in the Middle East, it's a private part. This woman is doing two things that will be very dramatic. She is, this is her outward sign of her commitment to Jesus. She who has experienced the forgiveness and love of Jesus lets down her hair publicly at the feet of Christ. Make no mistake, no wonder why they remembered these stories. They would have never forgotten it. That meal when this woman let down her hair in Simon's house at the feet of Jesus. And then she does what? She wiped them with her hair, and she poured out the ointment. Again, this is an outward sign of conversion. Why? Because this woman is not going to need this ointment anymore. She who has experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ is pouring it all out. A great little reflection for us that perhaps what do we need to pour out at the feet of Jesus? You know? I'm not going to be using this anymore. I'm not going to be needing this. So it's a a beautiful image of conversion. A costly demonstration of unexpected love by this nameless, sinful woman. When When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, And this is great, we get the internal dialogue. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So we begin to understand some of the theology of this Pharisee. He defines a prophet, perhaps a religious person, as someone who avoids sinners. Jesus will perhaps redefine a religious a holy person as someone who accepts sinners someone who offers even costly love to sinners and Simon is here seeing this poured out as well as everybody else trust me they would have stopped eating and taken this in jesus said to him in reply said Simon ding 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 <clears throat> Simon Something to say to you. Tell me. Simon's, what, all ears. Tell me, teacher. Jesus said, two people were in debt to a certain creditor. He owed one 500 days' wages and the other 50. Since they were both unable to repay the debt, he forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Pretty easy parable to understand, pretty easy equation. Five hundred or fifty. Simon said in reply, the one, I suppose, who the larger debt was forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? My friends, what Jesus says next. is Going to get him in trouble. Jesus was not nice. Jesus, this young rabbi, goes into another man's house. And I'm going to maybe bring a little Jersey into it. <laughs> Not to make Jesus from Jersey, but we know Jesus had part of Jersey in him, right? <laughs> Forget about it. Right? You got a problem with that? <laughs> that uh, and I'm going to give a little emphasis. Uh, Simon, something to say to you. <clears throat> Teacher, tell me. I guarantee you, Jesus said it with this emphasis. Uh, Do you see this woman? Hey, when I entered your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has bathed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she has not ceased kissing my feet since the time I entered. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you get the flavor, the emotion? Jesus is shaming another man in his own house in front of his friends. We're well, from New Jersey. There's a group I hear called the Mafia. I don't know, they I'm not saying they exist. Right? But imagine you go to the, the Godfather's house. He invites you for a meal. You're sitting there with Don Corleone. Right? <laughs> And he got the right-hand man, he got some other good fellows there, right? Halfway through the meal, you you slam the table, hey, Corleone, this food sucks. (laughs) And your wife, she dresses like a whore. What are you all thinking? You're never gonna see me again. (laughs) And I bet you the godfather would say, Mr. Wright, I invited you as a guest to my house. (laughs) <laughs> You've insulted not only my cooking, but my wife. You may, you may leave. I bet you he would have been calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, I'm getting out of here. All he would have to do is look at his right-hand man. Wouldn't have to say a word. And you'd all know this would be the last time you would ever see me. <laughs> you don't go into the godfather's house and insult him in front of his family, in front of his, uh, his buddies and get away with it. This is the same sort of raw emotion that would have, they would have experienced in that house 2000 years ago. And for what do you see this woman? You know, these great questions of Jesus, you know, good teachers have good answers. Exceptional teachers ask great questions. And there is no greater teacher than Jesus Christ. Did you know that throughout the four Gospels, Jesus asks over 100 questions? I was up all last night counting, so I hope you appreciate (laughs) the fact that Jesus... You know, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John, what are you looking for? Not a bad question. College kid on campus, what are you looking for? Business professional working 80, 90 hours a week? First words out of Jesus' mouth in Luke's gospel. Why were you searching for me? So those questions of Jesus, do you love me? What do you want me to do for you? Why are you afraid? And here Jesus speaks this way because of this repentant woman who is willing to let down her hair publicly and say, you know what, I'm hitching my wagon to that guy. I'm pouring out this new way of life, this old way of life, I may not know where I'm going, but I know who I'm going with. The God who loves me, the God who created me, and the God who has a purpose for my life. So when I say Jesus was not nice, it's more than just the instance where he turned over the table. That Jesus goes to Simon's house, Simon, I have something to say to you, and you could have heard a pin drop. So again, we enter into Holy Week, and as a crowd, people in the pews, we get to read along where it says crowd, see? We're Catholic, right? You're not, see, oh, oh, How many people follow along the Holy Week and you miss it? Right? You're like, and everybody starts, like, oh, where am I? Like the only time we can, like, say the gospel in church, and I'm, like, counting how many lights there are. <laughs> a couple people that count lights. That, uh, tiles, tiles, that, uh, that, again, when they were yelling, crucify him, I guarantee you, unless it was a major conversion, I bet you Simon was in the front row. You come to my house and you treat me that way? Maybe Simon did come to a realization that, yeah, I too, even though it's only 50 denarii, not 500, I too am a sinner and I need forgiveness as well. Maybe we pray that Simon came to that conclusion. But again, in the Middle East, where forgiveness, even today, is such a hard concept because of honor and shame, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Again, what I'll leave for you and for maybe your reflection, what does that mean for us today? At what cost are we just nice? Where are we willing to maybe stand up to an instance of injustice? Another human being is treated or judged one way. Are we willing to stand toe-to-toe? Are we willing to use our voice to speak up? Again, Simon thought, you know, religious people or prophet avoided sinners. Jesus defines every step of his life that what? That as Christians, as the presence of God, we offer this costly search. We not only have contact with sinners, we look for them we reach out to them, we offer this, this forgiveness, this love to them that comes through Christ. Everybody with me? Get the feel, the God, that was a good story of the Godfather. Right? Better than the subway story? Mm, probably not, <laughs> but that was good. So again, that feeling, from a Middle Eastern point of view, Jesus shames Simon in his own house. That was not nice by our standards, and he does it for this woman. Who we're speaking about 2,000 years later, who without a word lets down her hair, pours out her old way of life. Are you committed? What would be your out, outward sign of your commitment to Christ? Perhaps it is easy for maybe fathers and the, the habit to be that outward sign. As a husband, as a father, you know, what will my kids see me doing? Have they ever caught me praying? caught me reading scripture you know when we go shopping you know what let's get something for the food pantry you know what can be maybe our outside or outward uh, you know demonstration of our love of our commitment to Christ and it can even be a cross or something like that as well another story that Jesus is uh, a little upset not nice and you may think I'm crazy, that's all right. Like I said, I have four kids and when you're Catholic and people know you're Catholic and you have little kids, usually what they get you for presents for little kids is like the little Jesus books. <laughs> Who's ever bought a Jesus book or got a Jesus book? Okay, <laughs> right? yeah, of course got a Jesus book, right? And nine times out of 10, you get it. Ah, oh, a little children's story, I'm gonna read it to my kid. Be... And you open the first page, it's adorable. Because it's Jesus as the good shepherd. And he's got the lamb. <laughs> there he is. He's like, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm like getting misty-eyed just thinking about it, right? Now, right now you're thinking, no. He ain't going to ruin that story for me. Right? You can just leave right now if you just want to have that image of Jesus as like the nice good shepherd. do right? Luke 15. You know, the first... Verse, great for meditation. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to him. I draw near to God to beg, moan, complain, ask. These people are drawing near just to listen. You know, Mother Teresa said that silence is God's primary language. You know, maybe we can learn something, I can learn something from these tax collectors and sinners just to draw near to listen. There was a time for speaking and petitions and intercessions, but what a gift, just to draw near to listen. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them... Jesus addressed this parable. He said, what man among you having a hundred sheep? Jesus is like, pow, right? And we miss it. This is a good shepherd. What could be wrong here? Well, in the Middle East at the time of Jesus, we have from the Jewish writing, a number of lists, three lists of professions not to teach your children on two of those lists is to be a shepherd do not raise your kids do not have them be shepherds because almost part and parcel of being shepherd your sheep is going to cross boundary lines and it's sort of considered a sinful profession right beautiful image of god in jeremiah 23 ezekiel 33 psalm 23 a beautiful image of god but in the day today Shepherds were frowned upon, right? Unclean, which sort of heightens that what? That the angels first came to the shepherds, right? These insiders that were poor. Matthew has them going what? Wealthy Gentiles. So Matthew and Luke, you got what? Christ came for everybody. So Jesus looks at these Pharisees and says, hey, let's say you're a shepherd. They would have been greatly offended by that. We have such a positive image of shepherd, but when Jesus looked at them and said, hey, let's say you're a shepherd, they would have really taken offense. What man among you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them? Middle Eastern people don't speak this way. A Middle Eastern person would never say, I lost my sheep. What would they say? My sheep went from me. (laughs) They would never say, Oh, man, I missed the train. They would say, The train left without me. (laughs) It's a slight difference where the responsibility is not on me, it's on the train, it's on the sheep. Jesus does not play that game. He says, You're a shepherd. And you lost the sheep. Now remember, in Jesus' day, nobody would have had a hundred sheep. Nobody. You might have had five, you might have had seven, you might have had three, you might have had four. So the shepherd gets the sheep of the community. Right? It's a community sheep. So when we hear that one out of a hundred is missing, maybe it's not that big of a deal, one percent. But again, if you have four sheep and one of yours is missing, that's going to affect your ability to provide for your family. And as a community, now I'm going to have to sacrifice for my family to make up what was lacking in yours. So it is a little bit of a a crisis within the community because we don't know whose sheep it is. So right off the bat, Jesus is going on the offensive, that you're a shepherd in unclean profession according to the mind of the the people that are listening. And the responsibility for the lost sheep is clearly on their shoulders, right? And just a little bit about sheep and shepherding, Uh, that what, he would not go, he would not leave the 99 in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it. You know, the nature of the sheep, when a sheep is separated from the flock, does a couple things. Number one, it starts to shake because it realizes it's alone, right? Remember Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. The shepherd doesn't, you know, force him down. A sheep will lie down when he feels protected, safe, and well-fed, right? Like me watching a football game, (laughs) lying down, right? So here's a sheep that is nervous. You put food three feet in front of him, he won't eat it. Then the sheep, in his panicking, will make a bleating sound, That is exactly how the sheep sounds, exactly. The third thing the sheep does is a little gross, but it's, we're adults, he pees himself. Oh, I know, look at that, huh? But the sheep urinates because he is afraid, right? First grade, (laughs) and second, seventh, Uh, that. Now what does that do? Why am I telling you that? Well, that's because those things that the sheep does, it signals to the predators that here is a free meal. The bleeding will alert those who can hear. The wolves, the jackals, the lion, the hawks in the air will swoop down upon his head and pick out his eyes. And once you have blinded your victim, it's a free meal. The smell of the urine also will attract predators. And yet this good shepherd realizes that one is missing. And a shepherd usually takes three positions in front of the sheep to look for green pastures and still water. Remember Psalm 23, he leads me by still water. A sheep cannot drink out of running water or living water, a water with a source greater than itself, a stream, because he will go in and he will get his wool wet and he will fall down and drown. Sheep. So, (laughs) the shepherd will go in the midst of the sheep to make sure they're okay. And all shepherds like King David who got Goliath with a slingshot, all shepherds are great with slingshots. They're all great. Why? Because when you're moving 100 sheep, there's always a few, stragglers, and they need a good kick in the butt, right? So a slingshot, get the sheep moving in the right direction. So this shepherd realizes this. He's putting himself in danger by going into the wilderness to look for this sheep because the predators are still coming. The wolf, the jackal, the whatever, the lion, they're still coming to get the sheep. And yet this shepherd Right? is not afraid to have this costly search in the wilderness for this sheep who has soiled himself and he puts somewhat what, on his shoulders rejoicing. He is not afraid to get involved in the messy life of a sheep and carry it back. You know, the, the cross only really became popular in Christianity around the 300s and afterwards. The earliest frescoes and drawings that we have of Jesus in antiquity is of Jesus the good shepherd. And the shepherd always has a smile on his face, and the sheep is usually exaggerated in size. But it speaks of the costly search. And where do they go? They go to the home. Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. So this is a, a beautiful story that you can look in your children's book. In the shepherd, you know, so I like to get like a yellow pen in my kid's book and like soil the sheep, right? I like to have like the jackal come. Oh, my kids are biblically accurate, my friend. They know. Not the lost sheep, daddy! Yeah! Because, What? It's in the Bible. Don't want to teach my kids false doctrine. I don't do that. You know, I bite my tongue, right? What's the main point? Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you back, right? The sheep can't save himself. Repentance is sort of, what, being brought back, right? The next story, it gets worse, right? The first word's, Or what woman? You know, Jesus is using a a shepherd. And nobody asked my opinion. I don't know why. When they, like, named these stories. Because I'm, like, really smart. But it's not really the parable of the lost sheep. It's really the parable of the seeking shepherd. It's not the lost. We put the emphasis sometimes on the lostness. When really the hero, you know, we don't put a party hat on the sheep. And, like, beads from New Orleans. And, like, yay, let's have a party for the sheep. (laughs) We're celebrating, that is a good image all right? Did you picture it? She's like, I did, I did. That we're celebrating the, the costly search of the shepherd who realizes that someone is missing and goes out and has this costly demonstration of unexpected love in the wilderness. So the first, what, lostness is 1%, but it really affects the community. And then it gets worse. For Jesus says, or what woman? So Jesus is using a woman as an image of God, right? We get a hint of that in Psalm 23, sort of a feminine aspect of God. Where is it there? The Lord prepares the table, which in any Middle Eastern home is a role of a woman, right? The domestic house is to, to prepare the food. And here we have God in Psalm 23 preparing the table, that feminine image is not lost. And here Jesus takes from the tradition and says, what woman, it's not what's more important than your stuff, what's well, your money? And it's not 1%, but here it's 10%. And here the woman is what, again, seeking. A woman as an image for God. And this would have also really riled those who, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who were grumbling against Jesus for having that costly search. And I love that the woman, because the homes would have been very sort of small, and where Jesus is speaking, it was sort of this black basalt type of almost volcanic rock that these homes were made of. So she lights a lamp, but she also does something else. She sweeps. Rarely do I sweep to find something, right? But in that environment, she sweeps to listen to the jingle or the jangle of that lost coin. You know, maybe an application. How do we hear the lostness in people? And maybe it is a verbal, hey, I'm not feeling myself. Maybe they're just usually pretty active and now they're pretty quiet. Maybe we can discern something's going on. Maybe it's, oh, I got wasted again. Woo! You know, really, what might be behind that? You know, if it's habitual and over and over, can we? Maybe discern that maybe something is going on. And how do we reach out? In the last story, obviously, what's more important than your stuff or your money? It's your, your sons in the Middle East. And here's a father who has a heart of a mother. And maybe just that, that one word I'll highlight about the action of the father. You see, when the son says, Father, give me the share of my inheritance, what everybody is expecting is that in a rage, the father took off his belt, took the kid, you're too big, to, uh, took the kid behind the tool shed and whipped his ass in you know. That's what would have happened. Nowhere in Middle Eastern literature has that request ever been made. And what the son is really breaking is not so much a law, but what he's breaking is a relationship. And ultimately, what he is breaking is the heart of his father yet in freedom the father allows him to take the share which would have been a, a third the older brother would have had two-thirds you know the minute that kid did that right talk about honor and shame how bad is that dishonoring your father wishing him he was dead You know, a typical Middle Eastern scenario, if the father was like 80 and like really getting up there, he might call his sons and say, sons, I'm getting old. I want to divide my property amongst you. I'm I'm getting old. The sons would, father, no, and they would leave the house. We can't even think of of life without you. And then a week would go by. Boys, let me talk to you. Let me. I I know you love, I need to divide. I want to get my affairs in order. And and they would again protest. And maybe at one point they would say, yes, but we're not even going to do this when you're alive. Yet the younger son, not only does he disrespect the father that way, he sells it quickly. Nobody in the village, nobody in the town would have purchased it from that son. Here's a great man. And yet in freedom, he allows the children to do that. Do you know... In that culture, what would have happened? Because word spreads very quickly. It's almost like high school. Remember high school? No, not High School Musical because that's not real, all right? <laughs> the happiest high school ever. And that Gabriella. <sighs> but anyway, that. Any sharpay people here, gentlemen? More of a sharpay. More. I'll just continue. We're going to edit that part from the uh, from the film, right? That uh. In high school, if somebody gets up and, you know, curses at a teacher. Well, two periods later, everybody in the school knows what happens, right? <laughs> everybody knows what happens. This guy, this girl breaks up with him, takes off the jacket, throws it down, and, oh, my God, did you believe? You know? These villages, Bethlehem, probably about 90 families, right? Nazareth, about 70 to 80 families. These are very small communities. The minute that son did that, the men would have gathered together. And they would have had a sasa ceremony. They would have made a solemn vow to kill that kid. And they would have gotten pottery and smashed it, signifying that we cannot go back on our word. We get a little taste of that perhaps in sports. You know, a pitcher throws at your best player. Well, when your pl- best player gets up to bat, what's going to happen? You know, he's going to get hit too. Or in hockey. Somebody, you know, has a dirty shot against your best player. You know, next shift, you're going to get that guy. This is the mentality of the Middle East, right? So this is what's going on, sort of that story behind the story, the culture. So when the father, right, goes out, there's two words. It says, he ran. As Americans, not that big of a deal. But Middle Eastern men don't run. There's a proverb in the Middle East that says, A man is known by his walk. And Middle Eastern men walk like this. Hey, what's up? No, they don't do that. Hey, they walk with a nice, slow, even gait. Because it says to the community, I have my affairs in order. In America, if we rush around, we're important. I got this, I got my phone, I got, I'll see you later, I'm late for this meeting, I'm running here, I'm running there. In the Middle East, a man is known by his walk. You know, when I first heard that, about two hours later, I was in Jerusalem. And I said, you know what? Man is known by his walk. I was like, yeah, I'm bad. Middle Eastern, I said, oh crap, that's my bus in Italy. I lasted about 45 minutes, right, being like nice and slow and an even gait because I'm too American. So that phrase, that father, he ran. Why did he run? And I'll say it in Italian, because that's my boy. That's my best Italian. I'm sorry. He ran because if the townspeople got to his kid before he did, they're going to kill him. You read about it in the New York Times, every two weeks there's an honor killing, right? A young girl gets pregnant, young girl is seen in the village with a a man, not her relative. And it's the older brother or the, you know, uncle's responsibility to kill her. And no one's ever been put to jail. Because in that mindset, they've done the right thing. So when Jesus chooses these words, these phrases, these word pictures, it just accentuates God's love. That here's a father with the heart of a mother. He had to expose his legs and run through the heart of the city. That's the cross in this story. The humiliation, the shame that the father takes upon himself. And Jesus is saying, that's why I'm doing this. And sometimes we just think that, you know, the the older son should get a break, right? He's been in the field. Come on, this guy's out there cavorting, maybe even with prostitutes, selling the old man's stuff. But in the same way, we don't celebrate the sheep, although it was a good image. We don't celebrate the coin. We don't celebrate the party's not for the sun. And what animal gets killed in that story? Fatted calf. You know, a lamb can feed about 15. A sheep can feed about 35. A fatted calf can feed about 75 people. You see, every one of these stories ends with a community celebration, right? It's not like, okay, kid, let's go to Applebee's, you know, you're back. Here's a celebration honoring the father who's willing to humiliate himself to bring his son back. But there's even a worse humiliation going on because people are starting to talk. Where's the older brother? He's refusing to come in again. A party in honor of the father and the oldest brother is not refuses to come in unheard of the dishonor. The shame is greater than the younger son in the same way that the, the shepherd, that the shepherd, what sought the sheep in the wilderness. The woman sought the coin in the home. We have the younger son out in the wilderness, lost. Yet we have the older brother, he's just as lost in the home. And the father gets up from his throne. And in the sight of everybody, humiliated, goes out and entreats him as well. And ask him to come in. And we don't know how it ends. So again, Jesus is clearly saying that I'm acting as the Good Shepherd. I am acting as the woman. I am acting as the father with the heart of a mother. Clearly, the Christological statement that Jesus is saying, I am God. This is why I'm doing this. Because that's so my boy. She too is a daughter of Abraham. Do you see this woman? Or do you just see someone who is a sinner? Do you believe that everyone is created in the image and likeness of God? And whatever God does, he does beautifully and perfectly. And maybe just one more story. Everybody with me? Everybody good? Like, yeah. That, uh, so you get the sense that Jesus wasn't nice. Are you getting that? So your your task is to go out of here and be mean, right? That's what you, that in Luke 14, Jesus tells another great killer parable about a a great feast. And uh, you know, a man gave a great dinner to which he invited many. In the Middle East, there's no refrigeration. So every time there's a great feast, two invitations. The first one, you go and you make the invitation to see who's going to come. Once you know how many people are coming, then you know how many animals, whatever, to prepare. Or if you're a vegetarian, how many carrots to pluck. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't know if there were vegetarians back then. But uh, so these people respond, right? When the time for dinner came, he dispatches servant to those, to say to those invited, come, everything is now ready. So the second Invitation is to those who have agreed to come to the feast. Again, in the Middle East, your word, honor, this is what you have. But they began to make excuses. The first one says, Well, I have purchased, purchased a field and must go examine it. I ask you, consider me excused. Again, this is shameful, laughable. Land deals in the Middle East go on for months. He said he just purchased it. Now I have to examine it? You would examine it for months and you would haggle back and forth. If you go to Jerusalem today and you want to buy a plate. Everybody been to Jerusalem? Then I'll just make it up. <laughs> you to, that you see a plate that's, you know, 50 shekels. Oh, I like that plate, oh, 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 for you, American, oh, you good guy, you're handsome, uh, we'll give you 40 shekels, I don't know, oh, and you go, you stay there, they don't let you leave. Finally, you buy it for 15 shekels. It used to be what, 50, I got a good deal. That dude paid two shekels for it, right? I'm happy, he's happy, that's just for a plate, right? For like a half hour. Land deals go on for months. What are they arguing about today in the Middle East for the last 50 years? Land, right? Again, the party is usually at night. I'm going to go examine a field at night. (laughs) You you had a great laugh, thank you. That uh, (laughs) that more often than my funny things. (laughs) So this excuse is shameful. The second one, right? I have purchased five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to evaluate them. If you want to sell oxen, you say, you know what? I got these five yoke of oxen next Saturday. I'm gonna be at the field. You guys come down, check it out, pull the tail, kick the tires, whatever you do to (laughs) examine, right? But he says, "What I've purchased it, now I go examine. The third excuse, so again, land is pretty important, but this guy says, no, the, the second one, I've given you my word and you've chosen oxen? overcoming to my party reminds me of my prom when the girl said no i i have to exam- i have to rearrange my sock drawer that night <laughs> i didn't know women had such care for socks but i guess it's true that you know that's a pretty lame excuse here they're saying an animal is going to get in the way and i can't go to the prom with you because i got to walk my neighbor's dog <laughs> you're like what your father will kill me And rightfully so, The third excuse is even worse. It's a woman. Okay? That, in the Middle Eastern world, to let a woman get in the way of a man's word? And nobody would have gotten married that day. These wedding feasts are, you know, six, seven days, so this guy probably got married a month or so ago. But he says, no, I can't because I just got married. Does not even say, give me an excuse. So these excuses are shameful. And Jesus is saying that to these, what? To his dinner guests, to those who are Pharisees, that your excuses are lame and they're dishonorable. And uh, the servant went and reported this to the master. And then the master of the house, in a rage, commanded his servants. Now, this is a phrase that I think might tie some of this anger together. So my hope is not that you leave here angry or with a license to be mean to people. In a rage, he does what? Because he does feel this anger. You read the Old Testament, God is constantly bending over backwards and Israel forgets. God is, what do I have to do to bring these people back? But in a rage... He commanded his servant, go quickly, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring here the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The poor could never purchase land. The crippled and blind could never evaluate oxen. And in that culture, if you were lame, you would never have an opportunity to get married. So it's the exact antithesis, the opposite of those who were invited are now this invitation is being made. So Jesus tells a story where the master's anger is transformed into grace. And I hope you remember that phrase, that the anger, rightfully so, does not lead to vengeance or revenge or hatred, but the anger gets transformed into grace, an opportunity to even further open the doors of the kingdom. Right? Sir, your orders have been carried out. There is still room. You get the, catch the the excitement of the server. He knows the generous heart of his master and there's still room. First he goes in the city and now he says what? Go to the highways and headrows and make people come to my house that it may be filled. You know, here the word we see home, we see the word house. Do you know that the word home appears 30 times in the Gospels. The word house appears 99 times. After I counted how many questions there were of Jesus, I counted how many times the word house and home were in the New Testament. So much of Jesus' healing, teaching, forgiving, and sharing meals don't take place on the sandy shore of the Galilee or the bustling streets of Jerusalem, but they take place in the home. From the Annunciation where Mary sings the Magnificat in the home of Zachariah and Elizabeth, to the home in Emmaus where their eyes were opened, so much of the gospel story takes place in the home and is articulated in the home with the family. This is where Jesus has this twist. He tells a story, a man gave a great dinner to which he invited many. So Jesus tells this parable At the very end, for I tell you, Jesus switches it in the Greek to the personal, that none of those men who were invited will taste my dinner. So Jesus is making a pretty bold Christological statement. He didn't say that none of those who were invited will taste the dinner, will taste my dinner. That Jesus is the master of the house. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. So again, in this story, Jesus sort of switches the ending and tells about those who are making these excuses and that it's his dinner. So there is judgment there as well. The invitation is open, but to those who refuse, there is going to be judgment. Not because God's grace isn't sufficient or it's not there or available, but they have chosen to turn away. So there are a couple other stories, but maybe just by going through these three, that, you know, the Middle Eastern culture, the story behind the story, why such vitriol, why they wanted to crucify him and have him scourged and beaten. Well, in this culture, again, Jesus often went to bat for those who they were trying to push to the margins. The Amharats, the people of the land, the crowd, the sick, Women, right? sinners, they saw themselves as an elite group, often they, those in Jerusalem, the, the, the religious. And I think the message is that God wants all to come to experience his grace, his love. And what gets Jesus angry, it would seem to me, are those who put up walls, those who try to exclude, those from the tender mercy of God and from the love of God. So maybe when you look at the other stories, have that soundtrack, not so much as an American, the younger kid's freedom, right? Do what he wants to do, independent, see no problem with it. Not so in that culture. And even today, honor and shame still rules behavior.